Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be talking about the crucifixion and burial of Jesus Christ. We're going to pick it up right after Pilate found out that he claimed to be the Son of God, gets really nervous and wants to set him free. He says, shall I crucify your king? And they say, we have no king but Caesar, which unfortunately in their case was true. And so that's where Pilate sends him to be crucified. That's where we're going to begin this podcast, which according to Mark's account was about nine o'clock in the morning. At noon, the darkness will come for three hours. He will hang on the cross in that darkness from noon until about 3 p.m., where he gives up the ghost. Now, the text says that because the next day was a sacred day, they couldn't have a body hanging on a cross on that sacred day. Therefore, they rushed to pull him off the cross. What they want to do is they want to get him off the cross before sundown. And in Judaism, there is a big distinction. There's a big fight over what is the distinction of the Sabbath. Does the Sabbath begin when the sun goes down? Does it begin several hours before, and they actually had a lot of fights over this. Like, when is the Sabbath? The Romans actually excused them from being involved in the courts early on Friday because they wanted to honor their desire to get home way before sundown. And even today, if you go to Jerusalem on a Friday at like 3 o'clock, the businesses are closing. Now, sundown's not going to be till 6 or 7 or even later, but they're getting ready the preparation for the Sabbath. And so in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus is crucified on Friday. And that's why in, in a lot of traditional Christian uh, religions, they talk about Good Friday. Um, not that it's good from the perspective of Jesus' suffering, but it's good for humanity that the Lamb of God should die. And so he's crucified on Friday in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In John, Jesus is crucified when the lambs are slain, which would be on Thursday. So there's that distinction between the Gospels. Not that it matters. What matters is all of the Gospel writers attest that Jesus rises from the dead on Sunday. That's what matters. But John's perspective, from his view... Jesus is the Lamb of God that should be slain, and so he is slain when the lambs are slain, which would be on Thursday. It's a minor distinction, but what we're talking about here is essentially the day of the crucifixion. So I think typically in the church and in traditional Christianity, we're talking about Friday. So he's crucified on Friday. He's in the tomb before sundown on Friday. He's in the tomb Friday, Saturday, and then Sunday, and then he rises on the third day, unless you're reading John, and then he's crucified on Thursday, and then he's in the tomb Thursday night, Friday, Saturday, and then he rises Sunday. Either way, he's crucified, and he rises again. And so let's go to Matthew 27. In verse 31, we read, after that, they mocked him, they took the robe off of him, and they put his own raiment on him, and they led him away to crucify him. And as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, that's in Africa, Simon by name. They compelled him, Simon, to bear the cross. 
And when they were come unto the place called Golgotha, that is to say, a place of the skull, they gave him vinegar to drink. We'll talk about that in a second. The location of Golgotha is going to be outside of the city of Jerusalem, outside the walls. Simon is from a place which is now called Libya in North Africa. It was ethnically divided among Libyans, Greeks, and Jews, and there was a Jewish community there. So I think Simon was probably a Jew, and he probably came up to Jerusalem for Passover. Simon's carrying of Jesus' cross to Golgotha is a significant event in the Christian faith and is depicted in all kinds of art and literature throughout history. For 2,000 years, he's been depicted. And this is a great act of service. Simon could be seen as a type for like the universal brotherhood of man. Here he is, come up to Jerusalem. Whether or not he knows who Jesus is, he is a brother. And he goes and helps a brother in need. Now, just as a side note, I think that the trauma of the scourging would have put Jesus in a position where it would have been very difficult for him. It would have been heavy to carry that beam. And also, Jerusalem is not flat. You're going up and you're going downhill. So carrying something uphill would have been a challenge. In some interpretations, Simon's act of carrying the cross is seen as a symbolic act of redemption and salvation. You see, by him doing this, Simon shared, even in a small way, in the redemptive act of Jesus' suffering and death his willingness to help Jesus, despite the trauma it would have caused him, is seen as an act of humility and service. I can't imagine carrying this man's cross. You know, maybe perhaps he's never even met him before. It must have been traumatic to see this go on in the tumult that was made, and yet he, he does this. He does this act of service. And all of us are required to carry a cross. Jesus even said, if you're going to follow me, you must carry your cross. And in this circumstance, Simon carries Jesus's. Now let's go to Golgotha, where they actually crucify him. I know we mentioned this last year when we did Isaiah chapter 22, but it is worth mentioning again. And I'm going to quote from Jeffrey R. Holland in his recent book, Witness for His Names. Elder Holland says, when the Roman soldiers drove their four and one-half inch crucifixion spikes into their victim's flesh, they did so first in the open palm. But because the weight of the body might tear that flesh and not sustain the burden to be carried, they also drove nails into the wrist down in the nexus of bones and sinews that would not tear, no matter what the weight. Thus, the nail in the wrist was, quote, the nail in a sure place. Once it was removed and the Savior was cut down, the burden of the crucified body, more literally, the burden of the atonement, was brought to an end. In terms of our salvation— Christ is the nail in a sure place, never failing, never faltering, ever the most certain and reliable force in eternity. For this we surely hang upon him all the glory of his Father's house. There is great symbolism in that nail in the sure place. They put it there so his body wouldn't tear. But the way we look at it is the weight on his shoulders on that cross was crushing for anyone but a God. 
any mortal, according to the Book of Mormon, would have been killed by it. But the weight of that didn't kill him. It didn't tear him off the cross. It didn't crush him. He held that weight. And that weight symbolically is us being carried on his shoulders. Therefore, that nail is symbolic of the fact that he can carry any burden that we place upon him. He can carry the burden of my life. He can carry my sins, my heartbreaks, my agonies. He can carry the load. I can trust that he can and will carry that load. He is capable. He is a nail in a sure place. Now, the symbolism now turns right around to me. And I symbolically have been asked to take up my cross. Symbolically, I am being asked to be a nail in a sure place for him. He took a burden for me. He drank a cup on my behalf. Now he's going to reverse that. And during the Last Supper, he handed them a cup. And every Sunday, he hands me a cup. And I think we need to extend that to the nail in the sure place. I think he is turning around and looking at me and asking if I will carry the burden he lays on my shoulders as faithfully as he carried the burden laid on his shoulders on that cross. Will I be a nail in a sure place for him? There is great symbolism in his crucifixion and the weight that he would bear there and faithfully bear it. Dr. William Edwards has written extensively on the physical death of Jesus Christ, and he has a medical description that we put in the show notes, at least a bit of it. And then we've linked his article for you if you want to read the whole article. Sometimes it's useful in a class to read some of the medical description of what Jesus underwent when he was crucified. I think it depends on the setting. It depends on the class, and it depends on the questions that the students have. As a teacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I think it's important to know the circumstances of the crucifixion and to have read the medical terminology that's used to describe it. But I don't know if it's always necessary or essential to get into all the details in a classroom setting. That's really a decision that you make as you follow the dictates of the Spirit. But we wanted to make sure that we included that in the show notes for you if that's something that you would like to pursue in your gospel understanding. Now, we read that he goes to this place called Golgotha. That's Matthew 27, verse 33. And then it says, that is to say, a place of the skull. The text calls it Golgotha. In Greek, it's cranion, and in Latin, it's calvaria, or as it's been anglicized, Calvary. All of these words have the same meaning, and it just means skull. Now, people have looked to find the location of where Jesus was crucified and where he was resurrected, and there's a couple of really good possible locations for these events. The Garden Tomb Association has put together a video, and we've linked it in the show notes, because the face of the land has changed 
But if you were to go back to Jerusalem, say, in the late 1800s, you would see this hill outside the city of Jerusalem, and it does kind of look like a skull. And depending on who you talk to, that would make a, a really good candidate for the location of where Jesus was crucified. And the Garden Tomb Association has restored an area where there was a tomb just outside the Damascus Gate in the Muslim Quarter. That's one possible location for the resurrection site of Jesus, and that location would have been outside the city walls. It would have been along a prominent road where people would have seen the individuals that were put to death by the Roman Empire. Remember, Rome would execute people in places where the public were so that the public would see the power of Rome and that they would understand, hey, we're not going to mess with these guys. So that's one possible location. Another location that is within the walls of Jerusalem today, but anciently during the time of Jesus would have been outside of the walls of Jerusalem. This other location has been preserved over time, and it's in a big building called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. In the 4th century, Emperor Constantine's mother, Helena, she came to Jerusalem when her son converted to Christianity, and she asked the locals, where was Jesus crucified? Where was he buried? Where were these locations? And she went all around the Holy Land and talked to anyone who would communicate with her some of these locations. And over time, these sites were preserved, and a structure was built over these sites. And so today, you can go visit the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and you can see the proposed location where Jesus was both crucified and resurrected, and it's within a a massive structure, and there are several different Christian denominations that are stewards of the site. And at this location, you can see people of, of faith have come to remember the Lord and remember his death and his resurrection. And so those two sites are close to each other. Now, back to the text. We read in verse 35 that they crucified him and they parted his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture they did cast lots. That's a quotation from Psalm 22 verse 18. Now, there's an interesting addition in John's gospel. John 19, 23 reads, Then the soldiers, when they crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts, to every soldier apart, and also his coat. And then John adds, Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And then it's quoting Psalm 22. Now, a seamless tunic would have special value. That Jesus's tunic was seamless, it might recall the garment of the high priest, as well as the failure to tear his garments. Remember, if you go back to Leviticus 21 verse 10, it says that he's not to tear his garments. I think this is ironic when we read about Caiaphas. Remember Caiaphas, we talked about him being the high priest in last week's podcast. When Caiaphas asks Jesus, are you the son of God? And Jesus says, I'm the son of man and I'm coming in clouds of glory. We read in the text that Caiaphas literally rends his garments. Well, that would have been a violation of Leviticus 21 verse 10. Now, 
the garment of Jesus that was without seam. I believe John is trying to portray Jesus as the great high priest. In other words, I think what John is saying is, Caiaphas, you're not the high priest, Jesus is. In this case, if that's correct, this entire narrative would not only reveal that Jesus is the great high priest, but it would be undermining everything that Caiaphas thinks he is. In other words, this is another case of John using deep irony. John is basically assuming that you, the reader, understand the complexities of Leviticus, understand that the great high priest wore a coat without seam so that you catch the irony. I like this image of Jesus as the great high priest because it's the high priest that performs the rituals on the Day of Atonement. And what's the purpose of the Day of Atonement? One of its purposes is to reconcile Israel with God. So of course Jesus is the great high priest. Jesus, as the great high priest, is the one who goes into the most holy place, and he represents us to God. Right. Now let's talk about the seven statements Jesus utters while he's being crucified and while he's hanging on the cross. They are very significant. Seven statements he utters, and one thing specifically he did not utter. That's what I'd like to talk about. But I want to turn first to Jacob in the Book of Mormon. Chapter 1, verse 8 uses an interesting phrase. He says, Wherefore, we would to God that we could persuade all men not to rebel against God, to provoke him to anger, but that all men would believe in Christ. And now he adds this phrase and view his death, and suffer his cross, and bear the shame of the world. It's a fascinating phrase that Jacob wants us to view his death. Now, I don't know fully what he meant, but I have interpreted that as take a look at his death as a pattern on how to live. I think the seven statements for the cross, if that's all I knew about Jesus, if I had no other record of his life, his teachings, his miracles, if all I had were the seven statements from the cross, I believe it would be enough to set the bar and to tell me exactly how to live my life. So let's look at the seven statements. Three are given by Luke, three are given by John, and Matthew and Mark combined talk about one and give us another one. So those are the seven. I'm going to present them in what most likely is the order they were given, but I want to look at each one of them in the spirit of Jacob 1.8 and view his death. In other words, how does that statement teach me how to live my life? as I pattern it after how he taught me on the cross. Statement number one, let's turn to Luke. Luke chapter 23, verse 34, while they're pounding the nails through his hands, he utters, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, I think we should be clarifying, he's not necessarily speaking of the Jews who sent him to death. I think he's speaking of the Roman soldiers who are doing their job. From the perspective of Jesus, he's worried that the Father will overly punish the Roman soldiers who are simply doing their job. But the statement has so much application in my life. So here's the question I ask myself. Is there anything that anyone could do to me 
that I could justify hating them or being angry or withholding forgiveness if when they were pounding nails through his hands, he said, they don't fully understand, therefore I'm going to forgive them. Do you see how that becomes a guiding message in my life? If anyone ever does anything to me, the statement I need to remember is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And there it becomes a standard of living. Statement number two, let's turn to John chapter 19, starting in verse 25. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother. 26, when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple standing by whom he loved, that's John, he saith unto his mother, woman, behold thy son. Then he saith to the disciple, behold thy mother. I'm going to combine those into one statement. Jesus, hanging in agony, was concerned about his mother. Now, here's the application. Could I possibly have a bad enough day, a horrible enough event happen to me that I can justify wallowing in my pity being sorry for myself, and ignoring the fact that people around me need help. If I viewed that statement from the cross, hanging in agony, where he could very much justify feeling sorry for himself, his concern was, who's going to take care of my mother? John, would you do it? Would you take care of my mother? Now think about living that way. Think about being that kind of person. Could I ever have an event happen to me that was bad enough that could justify my self-pity and my wallowing and my bad mood and ignore the people around me who need help if I viewed that single statement from the cross? Now, speaking of viewing other people, let's jump back to Luke because there's going to be an exchange between the thieves of the cross. One of them, which was hanged with him, this is Luke chapter 23, verse 39, railed on him and saying, if thou be the Christ, save thyself and us. Total self-serving statement. If you be the Christ, save us. Verse 40, but the other answering rebuked him saying, dost thou not fear God seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, For we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, this is statement number three, verily I say unto thee, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Again, similar, but let me ask the question. Is there anyone I give up on? Is there anyone whose life is so unimportant to me that I am not worried about them getting into paradise or wanting to see them in paradise? Jesus here reveals one of his greatest motives, and that is, how can I help you get into paradise? And even on the cross, that work continues, even in his agony, He is still concerned about getting people and seeing them in paradise. And to me, that sets the stage. No matter how busy I am, 
no matter what they've done to me, no matter the situation, I am not going to give up trying to help them get to paradise. A complete focus on your salvation and not on mine, I think is the essence of Christianity. So to his mother, he's worried about her temporal care. Would you please take care of my mother, John? And to the thief on the cross, he's worried about his salvation. He's commenting on his salvation. Today, you will be with me in paradise. I wonder if that was a, I'm going to come and find you and let's have a conversation. He's concerned about someone's eternal salvation, even in the midst of his greatest agony. Now, let's have another conversation some other day about how a thief on a cross could qualify for paradise and exactly what was Jesus referring to when he said, I'll see you in paradise, and not necessarily distract from these seven statements on the cross. There will be some stuff in our show notes. If you're interested, go there. Don't be offended that Jesus says he's in paradise. I think this man still has a great deal of work to do to fully qualify for the paradise that you and I are thinking of. Number four, let's jump back to John's account. At some point while hanging on the cross in verse 28 of John 19, he says, I thirst. Now you might brush this off as just kind of, oh, I can understand why he would say that. But to me, this is so deeply symbolic. Jesus says, I thirst. Now verse 29 says, there was a set of vessel full of vinegar And they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it on hyssop and put it to his mouth. The reason I find so much significance in that is because do you remember the night before when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he prayed that the cup might be taken from him? In Doctrine and Covenants section 19, he said, which suffering caused myself, even God, the greatest of all, to tremble because of pain and to bleed at every pore, and to suffer both body and spirit, and would that I might not drink the bitter cup and shrink. Do you see what he called it? The bitter cup. Now, what is our evidence? What is our symbolic evidence that Jesus did drink the bitter cup and didn't shrink, that he finished that cup? Well, as soon as he says, I thirst, they dipped that sponge in vinegar and put it to his lips. So what was on his lips when he died? Vinegar, which is very bitter. And to me, that is beautiful symbolism that Jesus died having finished the cup. So now let me ask the application question. Every Sunday, Jesus hands you a cup. And yes, occasionally, you might refer to it as a bitter cup. Maybe there's something in that cup you don't want to do. Maybe obedience to a commandment you don't want to obey is what's in that cup. We all have something. We are all working on some aspect of the gospel, and it's sitting in that sacrament cup. And to me, maybe right now that is a bitter cup and I don't want to drink it, but how could I justify not fully drinking the cup with everything in it, knowing that he drank his and knowing what I put in his cup? I'm one of the reasons that was a bitter cup and he drank it 
and he did so gladly. He finished the cup with vinegar on his lips. Therefore, I say to myself, I've got to drink the whole cup. Everything he asks me to do, everything I've been asked to do, I'm going to do my very best to do because I am determined to drink this cup to the very end. Before we leave John's account where he writes that Jesus says, I thirst, we only read this in John. There's three statements in John that are nowhere else, and one of them is, woman, behold thy son, I thirst, and it is finished. We're getting to that. In the context of John's writing, when we're just reading the Gospel of John, I really appreciate Craig Keener's comments where he says, right when Jesus says, I thirst, in light of this moment, the informed reader might encounter Jesus's miracle at Cana in a new way. Jesus began the road to the cross when he turned water into wine. That's John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 and 9 and 10. Now Jesus receives sour wine, John 19, 29 and 30, before giving forth water. Look in John 19, verse 34, look what it says. One of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith there came out blood and water. Only when he has fulfilled the final scripture does he hand over his spirit. And so John is really constructing this narrative in such a way that's layered with symbolism. We begin the story, the road to the cross. Remember, he even says, my hour is not yet come, where we take water and we turn it into wine. And here he takes wine and he turns it into water. And I think John is deliberate here. Yeah. Now, let me jump to something very, very significant that he doesn't say. I'm going to turn back to Luke's account, Luke 23, starting in verse 35. And the people stood beholding. And the rulers also with them derided him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he be the Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocking him, coming to him, and offering him vinegar, and saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. Now notice, he said nothing to that. He kept his peace. Perhaps one of the most insightful things is what he didn't say. In the midst of ridicule and mocking, he did not bite back. Nephi's going to say it this way in 1 Nephi 19, verse 9, The world, because of their iniquity, shall judge him to be a thing of naught. Wherefore, they scourge him, and he suffereth it. And they smite him, and he suffereth it. Yea, they spit upon him, and he suffereth it. Because of his loving kindness and his long suffering towards the children of man. And then I love the definition of charity that Mormon gives to his son Moroni in Moroni 7. He says, Charity suffereth long and is kind and envieth not, is not puffed up, seeketh not her own. And then I love this definition of charity is not easily provoked, which is what Jesus manifests by not saying anything. And so again, I turn that on to me. Would I have responded to the taunting and the mocking by saying something biting back to them? 
Is that my nature? And if so, the invitation from Christ on the cross is to change that nature and not be easily provoked. There is a time and a place, but there's also a time to just hold my tongue and not say anything. So let's get to that fifth statement. Both Matthew and Mark add one more. And this is the moment he stands up on the nails in his feet and cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This is the moment we talked about in a previous podcast about Jesus had to pay the ultimate price in order to answer the ends of the law. He had to be completely withdrawn from God. He was removed out to the darkest abyss where no presence of God existed. He was completely alone. It was essential that he win this victory on his own. But here's the insight. Even in that darkness where he has now been abandoned by everyone, everything, and God himself, he still completes his mission. He finishes the job. And so we turn that on ourselves and we ask, are you going to finish the job even if there are those types of dark moments that might cause you to question whether or not you should? C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters says, this is one devil speaking to an apprentice devil. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human no more desiring, but still intending to do God's will, looks around upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished, asks why he has been forsaken, and still obeys. The chief devil is teaching the apprentice devil that our cause is in danger when human beings feel deserted, feel abandoned, and yet still obey. That's Christ on the cross. He was completely abandoned and yet still finished the work. I know you and I both have those moments. We have them when we're on the Lord's errand. I had them in the mission field, and I know you have them. Those moments where it sure seems like God has abandoned me, and yet I am still going to press forward and finish the assignment. I appreciate the words from Elder Holland, where he said, With all the conviction of my soul, I testify that he did please his father perfectly, and that a perfect father did not forsake his son in that hour. Indeed, it is my personal belief that in all of Christ's mortal ministry, the father may never have been closer to his son than in these agonizing final moments of suffering. Nevertheless, that the supreme sacrifice of his son might be as complete as it was voluntary and solitary, the father briefly withdrew from Jesus the comfort of his spirit, the support of his personal presence. It was required. Indeed, it was central to the significance of the atonement. He had to feel what it was like to die, not only physically, but spiritually, to sense what it was like to have the divine spirit withdraw, leaving one feeling totally hopelessly alone. And it was Elder Melvin J. Ballard who said it this way, We cannot stand by and listen to those cries without it touching our heart. 
His father looked on him with great grief and agony over his beloved son until there seems to have come a moment when even our Savior cried out in despair, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? In that hour, I think I can see our dear father behind the veil, looking upon these dying struggles even until he could not endure it any longer. And like the mother who bids farewell to her dying son has to be taken out of the room so as to not look upon the last struggles, so he bowed his head and hid in some part of his universe, his great heart almost breaking for the love that he had for his son. Oh, in that moment when he might have saved his son, I thank him and praise him that he did not fail us. For he had not only the love of his son in mind, but he also had love for us. I rejoice that he did not interfere and that his love for us made it possible for him to endure, to look upon the sufferings of his son and give him finally to us. Now that leads us to the second to the last. He says in verse 30, it is finished. His agony came to an end. It was finished. After he finished that cup, after his assignment was completed, after he answered the ends of the law, and with vinegar on his lips, his difficult task came to an end. Now, I believe this is a testimony to all of us that your pain will end, that your task will end. Anything he asks you to do, go through, as difficult as it may be, the burden you are asked to bear, those words, it is finished, stand as a testimony that every pain you carry will come to an end. Every challenge, every affliction, every burden, every heartbreak you experience will come to an end because his did. And his was a lot greater than the ones we carry. And because his came to an end, so will yours. Therefore, don't give up. I commit to finish mine. I'm going to do everything I can to finish it. And so that stands as a comfort that your challenge will end and an invitation to you to finish the tasks you've been asked to finish like he finished his. And then there was nothing else to say but the last one, number seven, back to Luke 23, verse 46. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said this, he gave up the ghost. Notice the cross did not end his life. He could have stayed on that cross for eternity. He is fully God and fully man. And as God, the cross did not kill him. He chose the moment he died. And so after he says, Father, into thy hands, I commend my spirit, he gave up the ghost and chose that moment. Back in John 10, I have power to lay it down, which is exactly what he did. But I want to talk about that statement, into thy hands, I commend my spirit. What if every one of us, after we've completed an assignment, what if upon my release of an assignment, when my life is over, I want to look back, even though I was imperfect and I made mistakes and I repented, I want to say, Father, into thy hands, I commend my spirit. 
It's kind of what Enos said in the Book of Mormon when he came to the end of his life. He still was able to look back and say, I soon go to the place of my rest, which is with my Redeemer. For I know that in him I shall rest, and I rejoice in the day when my mortal shall put on immortality and shall stand before him. Then shall I see his face with pleasure. For he will say unto me, Come unto me, ye blessed. There is a place prepared for you in the mansions of my Father. I want to say that. I want to have that confidence. I want to live my life so that I can commend my life into his hands like Jesus commended his. I think those seven statements, if we viewed his death, would be a marvelous guide on how to live, that no one would do anything to me for which I wouldn't instantly say, Father, forgive them. They don't understand what they're doing. Or in any amount of agony, I would still be concerned about someone's welfare and their spiritual salvation that I would drink the cup he gave me, even if it appears I've been abandoned. I will finish the cup he's given me so that I can commend my life into his hands. Now, I'm not perfect, and I'm going to make numerous mistakes, but I vow to repent every single time I do so that I can clean up those mistakes and still commend my life into his hands. May his death be a great motivation to your life. May you view his death and be better at living because of those seven statements he utters from the cross. I like that. I think that's important. So now in Matthew, Jesus has yielded up the ghost. That's Matthew 27, 50. Verse 51 reads, Behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake and the rocks were rent. No, notice that two things rip. I want to emphasize as soon as he's dead... Two things rip. The veil rips and the earth rips. In Mark's gospel, Mark is bookending this idea. And the way I see it is the way from heaven to earth and to earth back to heaven, that way has been made open by Jesus. We see this in Mark chapter 1, the events surrounding Christ and his baptism. We read that the heavens were ripped. It's this verb schizo in the Greek, verse 10. And straightway coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opened or ripped open and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of heaven and said, thou art my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And then in Mark 15, that chapter discusses Jesus and his crucifixion. Verse 38 we read, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. That verb, that schizo verb, is appearing there again at the end of Mark's narrative. In the Matthew account, verse 51 of 27, we read that the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to bottom. Now, the veil, we need to remember, was the separation between the hakal, the main building, and the holy of holies. And that was a piece of material that separated us from the Holy Presence. The significance of the veil being torn from top to bottom is so important. This direction of the tearing could suggest that it was a divine act rather than a human one. You see, the tearing of the veil from top to bottom could indicate that it's coming from heaven. And it could also be seen as a sign 
of the ending of the Old Covenant and the beginning of the New One. Now, that's really going to be described well in the Third Nephi account, where Jesus says, we're not doing shedding of blood anymore, but you need to offer unto me a broken heart and a contrite spirit. Now, the tearing of the veil could also symbolize the access to God that is now available to everyone through faith in Christ. This is what we read in Hebrews. This is Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 and 20. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Now, the holiest was the holy of holies, the sacred room there where the ark was. Back to the text. We're, we're entering into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he has consecrated for us through the veil of that is to say, his flesh. So if we read Hebrews chapter 10, 19, and 20 in this temple setting, the veil represents the flesh of Christ. So as the flesh of Christ was torn, as we tear the bread when we take the sacrament to remember the broken body of Jesus, so like unto Jesus, like unto the bread, so was the veil torn. And so we go ritually through the veil into God's presence because Jesus's body, like the veil, was torn. Latter-day Saints who have entered the temple can see a connection between the rending of the veil, the flesh of Jesus, the act of ascending to God, the Father, through the atonement of Christ, and the Father and the Son's desire for everyone to come unto him. This is what Elder McConkie wrote. Christ is now sacrificed, the law is fulfilled, the Mosaic dispensation is dead, the fullness of the gospel has come with all its light and power. And so, to dramatize, in a way which all of Jewry would recognize, that the kingdom has been taken from them and given to others, deity rent the veil of the temple from the top to the bottom. The Holy of Holies is now open to all, and all, through the atoning blood of the Lamb, can now enter into the highest and holiest of all places, that kingdom where eternal life is found. Paul, in expressive language, shows how the ordinances performed through the veil of the ancient temple were in similitude of what Christ was to do, which he, now having done, all men become eligible to pass through the veil into the presence of the Lord to inherit full exaltation. And so we go ritually through the veil into God's presence because Jesus's body, like the veil, was torn. Now, along these lines, Bryce is going to talk about the earth being rent. And I'm going to do it with the words of the Book of Mormon. Notice the significance of the earth rending as soon as he dies in the words of Jacob in 2 Nephi chapter 9. He says, Oh, how great the plan of our God. For on the other hand, the paradise of God must deliver up the spirits of the righteous, and the grave deliver up the body of the righteous, and the spirit and the body is restored to itself again. And all men become incorruptible and immortal, and they are living souls, having a perfect knowledge. So the veil ripping now symbolizes we can enter the Father's presence, but the earth ripping says that the earth cannot hold those bodies in any longer, that they are going to break out of their earthly prison. They're going to be resurrected and come back. Another Book of Mormon scripture, let's be clear what happened when Christ was resurrected. Mosiah chapter 15 says, there cometh a resurrection. Now, this is Abinadi speaking to the priests of Noah, so this was well in advance of Christ. But there cometh a resurrection, even a first resurrection. 
yea, even a resurrection of those that have been and who are and shall be, even until the resurrection of Christ, for so he shall be called. And now the resurrection of all the prophets and all those that believed in their words or all those that have kept the commandments of God shall come forth in the first resurrection. Therefore, they are the first resurrection. They are raised to dwell with God who has redeemed them. And thus they have eternal life through Christ who has broken the bands of death. And these are those who have part in the first resurrection. And these are they that have died before Christ came in their ignorance, not having salvation declared unto them. And thus the Lord bringeth about the restoration of these. And they have a part in the first resurrection or have life eternal being redeemed by the Lord. As soon as Jesus rises from the dead. Now we need to clarify Matthew. They didn't come out of the graves until after he did. He was first. But after they came out of the grave, notice verse 54. They went into the holy city and appeared unto many. Imagine that. Every prophet that ever lived before Christ, every righteous person, was suddenly there. Did Isaiah come in and meet with them? Did Adam? Were there other prophets that manifest? Now, the same thing happened in America. The righteous dead were resurrected. I'm positive Nephi came forward and Lehi came forward and Alma and all of those that lived before them appeared unto many. In fact, when Jesus came, he asked to see their scriptures. In 3 Nephi 23, verse 7, it says, It came to pass, he said unto Nephi, Bring forth the record which ye have kept. And when Nephi had brought forth the records and laid them before him, he cast his eyes upon them and said, Verily I say unto you, I commanded my servant Samuel the Lamanite that he should testify unto this people that at the day that the Father should glorify his name in me, that there were many saints who should arise from the dead and should appear unto many and should minister unto them. And he said unto them, Was it not so? And his disciples answered and said, Yea, Lord, Samuel did prophesy according to thy words, and they were all fulfilled. And Jesus said unto them, How is it that ye have not written this thing? Them rising from the dead was very significant, and they didn't write it. How be it that ye have not written this thing, that many saints did arise and appear unto many and did minister unto them? And it came to pass that Nephi remembered that this thing had not been written down. And it came to pass that Jesus commanded that it should be written down. Therefore, it was written according as he commanded. It was very important to the Savior that that be written down, that the graves were opened, and that he came forth as well as all the righteous before him. So the moment he dies, the moment he resurrects, the earth is ripped and the spirits are going to come forth and resurrect. What a beautiful breaking of so many things. He broke the barrier to the Father, and he broke the barrier to their spirits that were kept in the grave. Now, after watching that, after watching the complete darkness from noon until about 3 p.m., and watching the earthquakes, and watching all that, and then watching Jesus give up the ghost, and then the veil rent, and the earth rent, one of the centurions that was watching this, and all three synoptics tell this story, it was significant to them. One of the centurions that was watching this feared greatly and said, truly this was the Son of God. 
this statement by the centurion, truly this was the Son of God, is significant because it represents the first time in the Gospel of Matthew that a non-disciple recognizes Jesus' identity. This declaration affirms that Jesus is not just a mere mortal, but that he is the divine Son of God. Now, in these verses, we've got this happening in Matthew 27, 54 through 56, Mark 15, 39 through 41, and Luke 23, 47 through 49. We have people watching Jesus at the cross. We have uh, the earthquake, and we have the witness of the centurion. The earthquake that occurs at the moment of Jesus' death is significant because it represents that cosmic disturbance that highlights the importance of the individual who dies. And we see this really in the Book of Mormon as well. The Book of Mormon really portrays this. And then finally, the witness of the women. Testimonies of women during the time of Jesus were often denigrated and not upheld in court. And I find it significant that the witnesses of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, the witnesses of these three events are dominated by the testimony of women. One biblical scholar, Julie Smith, said in a, in a, in a conference I was at once, she said, if you were just making up this stuff and you were just making up this religion about Jesus, why would you put forth as your number one witnesses women? Because women and their testimonies were denigrated at this time. And I, I remember when she said that, it was like lightning went through me. And I thought, that's a really good point. I think the gospel writers giving the story of Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection, and having women at these events elevates women. And it also helps us see how Jesus treated them and how he understood them. And so the women at the presence of the foot of the tree, as I call it, I like to call it the foot of the tree. That's how it's described in Acts 5 verses 30 through 32. The presence of the women at the foot of the tree to me is significant because it highlights the faithfulness of Jesus's female followers who didn't abandon him. Many of his followers abandoned him in this moment, but these women stood by him even in the face of great danger. And to me, it also signifies and underscores the importance of women in the early church who served as faithful witnesses to Jesus, and they served as faithful witnesses to the most important events in all of Christianity, the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Let me throw one more fascinating prophecy in from the Book of Mormon, that it wasn't just the centurion that was testifying, it wasn't just the women, it was also the kings of the isles of the sea. There's a prophecy by Zenos, the Old Testament prophet that has been taken out of the Old Testament, but appears in the Book of Mormon. First Nephi chapter 19, verse 12 says, And all these things must surely come, saith the prophet Zenos, and the rocks of the earth must rend. And because of the groanings of the earth, many of the kings of the isles of the sea shall be wrought upon by the Spirit of God to exclaim, The God of nature suffers. It will be fascinating someday in the resurrection to go back and see all of the places on all of planet earth where that upheaval, the earth testifying that Jesus was killed, that Jesus died, and the testimony of all those kings and queens and witnesses and people who were sensitive enough to the Spirit to catch it and say, something significant is happening. The God of nature suffers. 
I think the whole earth bore testimony of him, not just that centurion. And to John, Jesus' life is fulfilling the Old Testament. John 19, verse 32, reads as follows, Then came the soldiers, and brake the legs of the first, and the other which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, and saw that he was dead already, they brake not his legs. Following this, John writes, And he saw it and bear record, and his record is true, and he knoweth that he saith true, that ye might believe. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. And again, another scripture saith, they shall look on him who they pierced. The reference to the scripture being fulfilled refers to two specific passages from the Hebrew Bible that are associated with Passover. The first is from Exodus 12 verse 46 that states that none of the bones of the Passover lamb should be broken. This was a specific commandment given to the Israelites right before they left Egypt when they were instructed to sacrifice a lamb and apply the blood of the lamb on the doorposts as a sign of their faith and obedience to God. This act protected them from the plague of the firstborn that struck Egypt. If you remember from the story that we read in Exodus when we were in the Old Testament last year, that killing of the lamb And the blood of the lamb was what protected the families. And when you read the Exodus story, it would seem to indicate that a mixed multitude left Egypt, that other people were also protected by the blood of the lamb, not just Israel, as we read some of that stuff in Exodus. That blood of the lamb enabled them and protected them so that they could escape Egypt and proceed to the promised land. John is seeing this as a prophecy that is being fulfilled in this action as the bones of Jesus were not broken, portraying Jesus as the Lamb of God. To me, what this shows us is that the authors of the New Testament read back into the Hebrew Bible types of Jesus Christ. As they look at the things that happen in Jesus's life and as they reflect on what they've just seen, and I really think... It's one thing to read it, but like imagine hanging out with this guy for one day. We would be talking about it for the rest of our lives. Like if you and I hung out with Jesus our whole life, we would be like, Do you remember that? Yeah. And then we'd say, I've never, we would say, Bryce, I've read the Hebrew Bible 50 times and I've never seen it. And they would go back and they would reread it. So the authors of the New Testament, they just spent this time with Jesus and they're literally going back and saying, I never even understood the Hebrew Bible. They're reading it again with fresh eyes because everything in the Hebrew Bible to them is a type of Christ. They they look back and they say, oh my goodness, the whole story of the Exodus was Jesus. Everything from Adam and Eve to the patriarchs, to the Exodus, to the conquest narrative in Joshua, to the monarchy, to the divided kingdom, the destruction of the first temple, the rebuilding of the second temple, everything in the Hebrew Bible points to Jesus. And Mike, I wonder if it was Jesus himself who did that. So the two disciples on the road to Emmaus that initially don't see him, he's asking what's going on. And then when Jesus begins to speak, he says, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Now we'll cover this in our next podcast, but listen to what Jesus did next. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, 
he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So maybe that ball got rolling because Jesus himself went back and said, wait a minute, look at this verse. Look at that verse. And they began to realize that it was all Jesus. The whole thing from the very beginning, it was all Jesus. They're just going back and rereading it. Now, clearly John's using Exodus 12. But another text that we think he's using is Zechariah 12.10. In Zechariah 12.10, it describes a future time when the people of Israel will look upon the one whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. Now, I think Doctrine and Covenants 45 is going to help us out with this. Um, The Messianic utterance is going to find fulfillment in the appearance of the resurrected Lord to the descendants of the ancient covenant people when he returns in glory, because they say, quote, this is right out of section 45, what are these wounds in thy hands and in thy feet? And he will reply, these wounds are the wounds with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. I am he who was lifted up. I am Jesus that was crucified. I am the son of God. And so we think this is what John's doing in John 19, that he's quoting Exodus 12 and Zechariah 12. In John 19, 36, he says, for these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. And again, another scripture, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. So verse 36 is hearkening back to Exodus 12. Verse 37 is hearkening back to Zechariah 12. And to John, that is fulfillment. Jesus's life is fulfilling the Old Testament. And it really just, it shows us that they're reading the Old Testament with fresh eyes. So now we're going to look at Joseph of Arimathea and his relationship to Jesus. And we're going to read from Luke 23. Verse 50 is where we'll start. And behold, there was a man named Joseph, a counselor, and he was a good man and a just. The same had not consented to the counsel and deed of them. He was of Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who also himself waited for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and begged the body of Jesus, and he took it down and wrapped it in linen and laid it in a sepulcher that was hewn in stone, wherein never man before was laid. And that day was the preparation and the Sabbath drew on. So there's a couple points I want to make about Joseph and about this exchange that's happening between him and Pilate and some of the implications. A a couple thoughts. First, crucifixion victims were usually thrown into a common grave for criminals, and they were not mourned publicly after death. If the Romans had their way, they probably would have just left the dead people to be eaten by birds or animals. That would be what they would do, but the Jews obviously are not going to go for that. Burying the dead was a pious duty in Judaism, and so uh, being unburied was too horrible even for a criminal. Josephus writes about this in Antiquities. Go to the show notes and you can read some more about that. And so what's going on here is Joseph's request for Jesus's body shows his veneration of Jesus, but it was also an act of courage. You see, if someone from outside the family made this request, it could identify them as a collaborator 
somebody who could possibly be tried for treason. Remember, that was what they got Jesus on. That was the crime for which he was convicted, treason against the state. So by Joseph stepping forward and saying, hey, I want his body, that could put him at risk. So the first thing I want to point out is that Joseph of Arimathea was willing to risk his life. So John 19.39 reads, There came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night. It reminds us back at the beginning of the gospel where Jesus has that night conversation with Nicodemus. If you go to John 19, we read that he brings a mixture of myrrh and aloes, that's John 19.39, about a hundred pound weight. Uh, That's not going to be cheap. And so that was a lavish expression of devotion to be able to bring the myrrh and the aloes of a hundred pound weight. And they, they meaning Nicodemus and Joseph together are taking Jesus to the tomb. So this was an act of devotion and love for the savior, venerating him. Now, as a side note, these two individuals are members of the Sanhedrin, which tells me that they were not there when the Sanhedrin was making those um, decisions and, and trying to convict Jesus, and they were bringing false witnesses. I don't think Nicodemus and Joseph were there. They probably had a quorum, but they probably didn't have the full body of the Sanhedrin there. Or they did, and there was a schism amongst them, because Luke chapter 23, verse 51 says, you could read it both ways, the same had not consented to the council and deed of them. So either he was there and he clearly stood up and said, no, this man is not to be put to death, and somehow they ignored that, or he wasn't there and he didn't consent to that, but they moved forward anyway. But this man stood in defiance of the very council of the Sanhedrin that he belonged to. And remember, we've read numerous times this year that if if you supported Jesus, you would be kicked out of the synagogue. The man born blind, remember how his parents were so worried because the Pharisees had stated that anyone who acknowledges a belief in Jesus is going to be kicked out of the synagogues. And here's two members of the very Sanhedrin itself, the highest council of the land, that are standing up in defense of Jesus. And I really do think Joseph of Arimathea was a man of means. The scriptures don't tell us a lot about him. There's a lot of stuff in extra biblical tradition and in early Christianity and the traditions associated with it. Now, I will just say this. There are some really interesting connections with Joseph of Arimathea as it relates to Jesus and as it relates to Mary, but we don't know if these are historical. They're certainly not attested in the canonized biblical record. But one of the legends is that he was actually related to Mary, the mother of Jesus. According to some traditions, he was her uncle. We actually link books in the show notes where you can read some of this stuff. I find it fascinating. As someone who loves Christian tradition and history, you know, how much of this stuff is historical, I don't know. But as you start reading this, it really is interesting how it shows us that there's this whole backstory to the biblical record. Another account uh, indicates that he was very wealthy and that he was a merchant and that he traded in tin and other metals. And he was purported to have even had access to a tin mine in Britain. And he actually established and built a chapel at a place called Glastonbury in England. Now, depending on who you read, there is some 
indication that he founded the first Christian church in Great Britain, according to the legend. And then also that he, according to some accounts, Joseph of Arimathea even possessed, you guessed it, the Holy Grail. I mean, everyone's looking for the Holy Grail, but this legend that Joseph of Arimathea had it and used it in some of the early things going on with Christian tradition in Britain, it is intriguing to me. Now, we don't know, but this we do know. He put himself forward and risked his life, and then he did great things, showed great respect to Jesus. So now let's go to Matthew 27, verse 62, the sealing of the tomb. The next day that followed, the day of the preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees came together to Pilate, and they said, Sir, we remember that the deceiver said, while he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. Command, therefore, that the sepulcher be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away, and say unto the people, He is risen from the dead, so that the last error shall be worse than the first. Pilate said unto them, Ye have a watch, go your way, make it as sure as you can. So they went and made the sepulcher sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch." And thus, the 27th chapter of Matthew ends with the chief priests and Pharisees making sure that they have a watch at the tomb where Jesus is laid and that there's a stone put there where the entrance is so that no one is going to be able to get in or out. But let's end this podcast with the last verses of Luke 23. As Joseph and Nicodemus rushed that body into the tomb, it must have been quick and it must not have been complete. In verse 55 of Luke 23, it says, And the women also, which came with him from Galilee, followed after, and beheld the sepulcher, and how his body was laid. And that must have tormented them, that the person who deserves a proper burial didn't get one. His body wasn't prepared the way they normally do. And if anyone deserved it, he did. So in verse 56, these women are going to go as soon as they possibly can when the Sabbath is over to properly prepare his body. And those are the women who will tell the news of his glorious resurrection. Now that's going to lead us to the beautiful moments of Sunday morning. But I want to leave you for this week as you ponder. These are gloomy events, and I think there's going to be a gloominess in your soul. And I think maybe that's appropriate this week as we ponder his death, his crucifixion, and his suffering. But I want to leave you with the beautiful words of Elder Joseph B. Wirthland, one of his final general conferences. Listen as he talked about the loss of his wife. He said, quote, I owe more to my wife than I can possibly express. I don't know if there ever was a perfect marriage, but from my perspective, I think ours was. When President Hinckley spoke at Sister Worthland's funeral, he said that it is a devastating, consuming thing to lose someone you love. It gnaws at your soul. He was right. As Elisa was my greatest joy, now her passing is my greatest sorrow. In the lonely hours, I have spent a great deal of time thinking about eternal things. I have contemplated the comforting doctrine of eternal life. 
Then he teaches of the resurrection, but his final words are these. Each of us will have our own Fridays. Those days when the universe itself seems shattered and the shards of our whole world lie littered about us in pieces. We all will experience those broken times when it seems we can never be put together again. We will all have our Fridays. But I testify to you in the name of the one who conquered death. Sunday will come. In the darkness of our sorrow, Sunday will come. Join us next week as we talk about Sunday. We will see you next week when we talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.